Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Good day. To all my liberty-loving friends out there, this is, of course, the Lions of Liberty podcast, and this is episode number 85. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the Director of Communications and Marketing for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. Brad Burge, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Well, Brad, I only recently learned about your organization and, and the work you guys are doing at MAPS. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So how did you first become interested in the subject of psychedelics as medicine, which is what you guys research over there at MAPS? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I think like a lot of people, uh, I'd heard a lot about psychedelics, you know, just from countercultural history before I even learned about what happened in the 1960s and the 1970s. I heard about psychedelics through the D.A.R.E. program, drug abuse resistance education when I was in elementary school about how bad they were and how they'd, you know, poison our minds and put holes in our brains and all of that. So, you know, I thought at that time, you know, hey, you know, I have no reason to use or try drugs. So why would I, uh, you know? Why would I try them anyway? It wasn't until a lot later uh, when I was in graduate school and I was looking for something to explore for my uh, dissertation. I, I ended up taking my master's and not completing my PhD, but I was interested in, 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 in how m- drugs over the history of uh, pharmaceuticals and the history of science turned into medicines. And this relationship between, you know, we think about something as a drug and it's bad or it's harmful and we think about something as a medicine and it's good. So, you know, how do we define these things? And then I, I found MAPS. I was looking for organizations that were doing uh, work in that area in an intriguing way uh, and an exciting way, uh, even a sexy way, uh, because Ooh. psychedelics are, uh, are, are, are very exciting. Uh, they're they're uh, something that kind of sell themselves in a marketing sense. Um, it's easy to, to to generate excitement about them. And here was an organization that had tackled that, that had tackled that stigma around psychedelics and was working to transform them into medicines in a legitimate way. So I became an intern and uh, eventually started working with them. Very cool. And it's funny I point out how you were first introduced to the concept of psychedelics through the D.A.R.E. program, which is <laughs> it's, it's so ironic how it works. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be this program that's supposed to scare kids away from drugs. But, I mean, you're not the first person that's told me this, and it, it's certainly true for myself as well. I didn't really know anything about drugs until I started seeing all these commercials telling me not to use them until I had this D.A.R.E. program coming in and telling me all about them. And that's when I first started even you know knowing about drugs at all. And I don't know, I'm, I'm all for openness 
and for information, but it does seem that you know the way that the Dare program and some of these commercials approach the subject is is more from a fear mongering aspect than from a an honest information aspect. Uh, is that is that something you, you see a lot with uh, you know when when you're encountering people that have never really you know delved into psychedelics as much as you have? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I, I I come across them so uh, so often. It's my day to day. You know, I talk about them right. so often. There's there's so much happening with psychedelic science and medicine right now. I'm just, you know, my time is packed talking about them, and and it's easy for me to forget. I think sometimes that uh, there's been this long history of miseducation and counter-education and just non-education about psychedelics. Uh, there's a new book called Acid Test, LSD, Ecstasy, and the Power to Heal by Tom Schroeder, a former Washington Post Sunday Magazine editor. And in it, he uh, cites one scientist who talks about how when psychedelics were criminalized in the 1960s and 1970s, it was as if they had been undiscovered. Since before then, they'd been used in therapy and used in medicine uh, fairly extensively. Uh, so, so ever since then, ever since psychedelics have been, you know, swept under the rug and criminalized, and their their manufacture and distribution has been stigmatized and 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 also criminalized. Uh, we just haven't had real education about them, except to hear, oh, they're dangerous, oh, they're bad, uh, and 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 so on. And so we have this black market circulating of psychedelics, MDMA, LSD. We don't know what we're getting. People don't know what they're buying and what they're putting into their bodies as a result of the criminalization. And then on top of that, they don't know how to use them. Uh, and they think that the only way to use these drugs is to abuse them because that's what this D.A.R.E. program and that's what all of this counter-education has been teaching people for so long. So what MAPS is working towards is a world in which that education is actually available since we're seeing people using these drugs anyway. Regardless of the criminalization, we see people actually using them more. What we're trying to do is get education out there so people can educate themselves about how to use them safely and responsibly and ultimately legally. So why don't you tell us a little bit more specifically about MAPS? How is this organization founded? What is the specific mission and what exactly what kind of research are you guys doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, MAPS has been around for a while, um, since 1986. Uh, our, our founder is uh, Rick Doblin. He has a PhD from Harvard in public policy. Um, but he started MAPS before he got that PhD. He, he knew a, a large community of people, of therapists and psychiatrists who were using MDMA, uh, which is the active ingredient or what's supposed to be in ecstasy or molly these days. Although, unfortunately, because of the black market, ecstasy and molly really uh, often, most often don't contain any MDMA at all. But back then, in the 1970s and 1980s, when you bought MDMA, uh, it was actually MDMA, since it wasn't very popular yet. Uh, it was actually primarily used in therapy, in psychotherapy for couples counseling, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, just like LSD. LSD was also, even earlier than MDMA, used in therapy uh, very, very widely around the world. And in 1985, MDMA was criminalized. Uh, the DEA emergency scheduled MDMA, labeling it a Schedule One drug, and that immediately froze the ability of any psychiatrists or researchers to really use MDMA in their practice. Um, there was a large community of people who were using them, uh, who were using MDMA uh, in, in 1984 and 1985, and they just stopped because all of a sudden it was threatening their licenses, threatening their careers. Uh, any sort of funding that would uh, be available from the federal government or private institutions dried up because of the stigma associated with illegal drugs. So at that point in 1985, the uh, legitimate research into MDMA uh, just vanished. Uh, it, just, it just dried up. It stopped. It was this moment of undiscovery, uh, like Tom Schroeder talked about in acid test. And um, 
The next year, Rick Doblin founds MAPS in 1986 uh, with the specific purpose to restore MDMA and LSD and other psychedelics uh, and marijuana back to a legitimate place in medicine and in science. So in addition to that scientific mission, uh, we have this educational mission, uh, which um, uh, the, the, the two work together. Uh, and it, we conduct on one side scientific research, clinical research, uh, government-approved studies into the benefits and risks of psychedelics combined with therapy for specific medical conditions. Uh, and then on the other side, we have an educational mission where we're educating the public about the real risks and benefits, the results of that research um, of psychedelics uh, so that ultimately we can create legal contexts where people can use psychedelics not just for therapeutic or psychotherapeutic purposes, but also for spiritual growth and uh, creative purposes uh, and, 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 and so on. So how does that actually work? I mean, I know obviously a lot of these substances you're dealing with are criminalized, as we discussed, but you do research and it is government approved. So how does MAPS go about getting approval for this stuff? I mean, how does that whole process work? Yeah, it's a it's a carefully navigated bureaucratic uh, process for Nightmare. sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, you know, a major part of what Maps is doing is uh, we're here to jump through the hoops uh, to to take these these compounds which have been traditionally exiled uh, from the process and carry them through these governmental hoops and show that uh, we can get real real research results. And the way that we do that is by getting approval from the relevant government agencies. In the, in the U.S., it's the FDA. That's the main agency, the Food and Drug Administration. It's the same uh, agency that uh, oversees the development of all prescription drugs, all prescription therapies, drugs, devices, and so on. Uh, so we're working with the FDA uh, directly to, to, to get those studies uh, advancing. Uh, there's also other organizations that we have to work with to get approval for the studies, such as the institutional review boards or the ethics review boards. Uh, those uh, those boards also have to review and approve our studies. And also, because we're dealing with Schedule One drugs, the Drug Enforcement Administration also has to approve all of our research. So that's with psychedelics. Um, when it comes to medical marijuana research, which we're also trying to develop into a prescription drug at the federal level, we also have to go through an extra review process, uh, an entirely extra, uh, very obstructive review process through the Department of Health and Human Services that's required for marijuana but not for any other drug. So the process for psychedelics is slightly less complicated even than the process for, 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 for getting approval for medical marijuana drug development research. That is so fascinating, really, because on the if you were going to kind of rank the stigmas of, of various drugs out there, I think that at least at this point in our society, I mean, marijuana seems to have sort of the least stigma attached to it. Uh, medical marijuana is finally getting a lot of mainstream coverage. There are many states that have medical marijuana laws, many states that have recreational laws, but and yet you still have to jump through the most hoops to study marijuana and, and not all these other drugs, which are classified, you know, at least stigma wise anyway, in a, in a much yeah. different way. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing all of this opening up at the state level and the local level for medical marijuana. But you guys got to deal with the feds. So yeah, it's absolutely. 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 We want people to be able to access it by prescription to have insurance cover medical marijuana. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's actually harder than conducting the psychedelic research. With MDMA research in particular, we're, we're in phase two and uh, expecting possibly uh, even to have FDA approval for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD by 2021, by late 2021, so just six or seven years from now. Uh, whereas we're much farther behind 
with the marijuana research. So that's kind of the good news with psychedelic research and just the, the kind of, uh, oh my gosh, really, about the medical marijuana research. Right. Why don't you um, touch on some of the myths about psychedelic medicine out there, or not even medicine, because I, I think most people don't view it as medicine. They view it, as you said, as, as just a drug, a drug people use to, you know, go uh, go trip out in the desert or something like that. So what what actually are the, are the biggest myths you encounter when, when, when talking about this stuff? Yeah, I think like, like that's a great question. Where you know, like um, I mentioned before, this 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 dare, this dare mentality, this this prohibition war on drugs rhetoric mentality, uh, it frames these drugs as if uh, you can only use them in harmful ways, as if all use is abuse. Uh, and um, that's that's just it's just it's just not the case. It's just not what we see happening with these drugs. Rather, what we see is that it, it, it uh, when it comes to psychedelics, especially how you use them, the intention you have, the setting that you use them in, uh, the the purity of the drugs themselves, all of these have a a huge impact uh, on their relative risk and benefit. So this myth that you can only use psychedelics for harm or they can only be used in harmful or irresponsible ways is simply not true. Uh, What we're finding is that when used in combination with therapy in a careful setting, in a a safe setting with adequate support and supervision and guidance, that, that the drugs can actually be very helpful. But again, just to emphasize, it's not the drugs on their own. Uh, that are showing the real benefit. It's always psychedelics combined with therapy or psychedelics combined with a supportive context that are producing real benefits. When people are going out on their own and using them, that's a very different way of using psychedelics. I'd I'd say that's probably the number one most common misconception that people have about psychedelic medicine is that we're not talking about a prescription that you can just take home. It's not like take three MDMA pills and call me in the morning. You know, that's just the absolute farthest thing from what we're doing. Instead, we're presenting uh, to the FDA this combination of MDMA with psychotherapy and showing how MDMA can actually help facilitate the psychotherapeutic process rather than just being the treatment itself. That's really interesting. I mean, I think so many people would hear MDMA and and think of ecstasy and think of, you know, teenagers or young people going out to the club and then, you know, dancing around with glow sticks and and all that jazz. And and that's you're not necessarily saying that's morally wrong, but that's not that's not the, uh, the the way you guys are looking at it. You're actually looking at it as not even just as a drug, but as just a one element of therapy. Now, you mentioned that this was actually used in therapy before it was criminalized. So can you tell us a little bit more about how specifically MDMA is used in a therapeutic setting? How does it actually help people? Sure. Uh, well, yeah. You know, like you're saying, it's um, it's it's been around for a long time. It, it's um, it was first developed uh, all the way back in 1912 by Merck Pharmaceuticals, uh, and then promptly forgotten about until the 1950s when the U.S. Army started doing their secret uh, chemical um, uh, their secret chemical agent testing, uh, and then uh, when those experiments didn't work. They, they, they forgot about it for a while again until it was picked up again in the 1970s by a community of therapists. So that's just some interesting background with MDMA, um, just sort of its, its long progression yeah. and then where we are today with it. So MDMA, as we're using it in this therapeutic method, uh, it's, it's, again, MDMA combined with psychotherapy. So the way the process works is that subjects come in for a standard psychotherapy session. These are people with chronic and treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. That means they've tried other treatments, other approaches to working with their PTSD from medications to other forms of psychotherapy, and those approaches haven't worked for them. 
So, so far, those are the only people that we've enrolled in our trials, people with chronic treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. So in one sense, the worst cases of PTSD are what we're dealing with. So they come in for their first session, and it's just a standard psychotherapy session where they get to know the co-therapist. There's a male and a female therapist there uh, to provide support through the entire session. Uh, after a couple of standard psychotherapy sessions where they all get to know each other and feel comfortable w- with each other, then there's an experimental MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session where the subject comes into the clinic in the morning. There's a, there's a living room set up with soothing music and a, a, a restroom right nearby and, and, and adequate food and water and hydration. A medical monitor is right there. There's a cardiac monitor to just check heart rate and so on, um, soothing art on the walls. So it's a tranquil resting setting. Uh, it's uh, on one hand, the farthest thing from a rave, and on the other hand, not a not a hospital setting, so it's not sterile. Uh, and so this this experimental session, they come in in the morning and they take the MDMA and they have an eight hour psychotherapy session where they stay there in the room uh, and just talk with the therapists who are trained in a particular uh, method of psychotherapy, which has been developed specifically for MDMA assisted psychotherapy by MAPS. Uh, where where they allow the experience of the subject to just come forward rather than telling them you have to think about this or why don't you think about your trauma in this way. They allow the subject to talk about what they want to talk about with just support and, and general guidance from the therapist. And what happens there is while the subject is under the influence of the MDMA, there's a couple of things that the MDMA is doing. One, it's working directly on the uh, on the uh, amygdala, which is a, a deep component of the human brain that's responsible for regulating, among other things, fear. And so what MDMA does is it reduces activation in the amygdala so that while subjects are talking about their painful memories, they don't have the same fear activation and terror that they normally experience when they're talking about whatever happened to them, whether it was a sexual assault uh, or or childhood abuse or um, they were uh, serving in the military and a bomb exploded um, or, or, or any number of things that could have caused their trauma. While they're under the influence of the MDMA, they don't have that same fear activation. And the other thing it does uh, is, it, is it releases oxytocin, which is, a, which is a hormone that's naturally occurring in the human body, and it helps people feel feelings of uh, compassion or closeness or safety. And that's a really interesting one because in the context of a, of, a, of, of a dangerous environment, so if somebody is using MDMA, just assuming it's pure MDMA, in a dangerous environment at a party or a rave, uh, they might feel very safe. They might feel comfortable, um, but they might not be in a comfortable place. And that can put them in an, in an actually dangerous situation where you feel uh, safe when you're not actually safe. But in the context of psychotherapy, when you are in a safe space, when you are in the, con- in, in the, in the um, immediate company of trained therapists who are there to help you confidently uh, rethink uh, and um, rewire your relationship to your trauma, uh, that, that feeling of openness and safety actually facilitates psychotherapy. And people talk about it as being like, like 20 years of therapy in just a few hours. Um, a lot of people have come out of the therapy um, saying things um, like that. So in that way, MDMA is facilitating the psychotherapeutic process by uh, opening up this window where uh, people feel comfortable talking about their difficult feelings. 
Wow, that is really fascinating stuff, Brad. And, and I, you mentioned, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and, and stuff like that. And I, I have to imagine that a large portion of the people coming in for this kind of therapy, and correct me if I'm wrong, are, are military veterans. Is that is that the case you find? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Uh, we actually have one study that is specifically focused in veterans. Uh, that's an ongoing study in South Carolina in 23 subjects. We've almost, almost completed enrollment for the study. We've had a waiting list of over 400 subjects for that study for quite some time. Um, there's um, just just an intense, just really, really difficult to deal with, really need for PTSD treatment for veterans especially. Um, we also have three other ongoing um, what are called phase two FDA drug development studies uh, looking at that therapy, one in Boulder, Colorado, uh, one in Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada, and then one in Israel as well. Uh, those are all ongoing, and they're enrolling. Uh, those other three studies are enrolling subjects with PTSD from any cause: childhood abuse, trauma, uh, and 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 other things. Um, also, in that veteran study in South Carolina, we're also enrolling a couple of subjects who are police officers and firefighters with service-related PTSD. Also, a couple of veterans with uh, military sexual assault, so sexual assault that occurred while they were in the military. Brad, could you expand a little bit more on exactly what PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is? Because I know it's, it's a term we hear tossed around a lot. Um, you know, some people might think it's not that serious, but what is this disorder really in reality? What does it mean for the people that have it? You know, in in their everyday lives. Yeah, uh, well, I'm uh, I'm I'm thinking about a really great summary of PTSD that Dr. Richard Rockefeller, uh, the late Dr. Richard. Uh, Rockefeller, who was a big supporter of MAPS, uh, gave um, at a Commonwealth Club talk uh, in San Francisco in, 2000, um, in 2011, I think it was. Um, so um, Dr. Rockefeller summarized it like this, you know, trauma uh, or post-traumatic stress is this reaction that we have to any sort of difficult or scary event. So if uh, you almost get hit by a car and you jump out of the way, then you might be really sensitive. Uh, you might kind of jerk or startle every time something comes at you from that side in the future. That's post-traumatic stress, and anybody can develop that from anything. You might, it's just sort of a conditioned reaction that we have to things. Post-traumatic stress disorder is much more serious. It's a, it's a diagnosable illness, um, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists use to diagnose diseases. And it's a, it's a, it's a much, much more complex and much more difficult condition. And it comes with a whole range of symptoms including nightmares, sleeplessness, chronic anxiety. Uh, often people become addicted to substances uh, because they're trying to deal with this difficult relationship they have with this difficult memory through other means. Uh, depression, uh, suicide is, is highly strongly correlated with PTSD. Uh, we have, in fact, this, this statistic uh, of, of uh, 22 veterans a day at this point uh, actually committing suicide. That's more uh, veterans who are dying as a res uh, you know, once they're back home than are actually dying in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, we, we have this, this correlation between suicide and PTSD that is um, you know, really an epidemic. Um, so PTSD has these, these um, is, is, um, it's, it's defined by the inability of people to um, you know, process difficult memories uh, rather than um, being able to distance themselves from their memories 
they relive their memories. Uh, they, they constantly relive those negative experiences, uh, and things around them often remind them of those negative experiences, and they often feel that they're trapped and unable to talk about their experiences or that they're alone in their experiences. Uh, this is a really common experience of people with PTSD. So in that way, this MDMA combined with psychotherapy, where it's reducing fear and increasing uh, people's desire and ability to connect emotionally with themselves and with others, is, is almost the opposite of the PTSD symptoms, which is cut off uh, and dissociated, whereas the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is more connected. Um, so um, this, this, it's, um, it's, it's been stated before. I've heard researchers say that you know if you could if you could invent a drug that was perfectly suited for working with PTSD, you might say it was it was MDMA just just by its direct effects uh, in facilitating psychotherapy. Wow. Yeah, and you know that it really is a troubling statistic you mentioned about the military suicides because yeah. we always see these numbers about oh the. The, the level of combat deaths or the level of injuries, but they don't include the trauma that so many people go through and that suffer through PTSD for many, many years and maybe end up killing themselves because of it. That's not considered a combat death. That's not considered a combat wound, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know. And that's really just, it's this kind of hidden thing. I mean, I'm glad there are people like you guys and, and us on the show talking about it, but it's, it's not something that's addressed, um, you know, as openly, nearly as openly as it should be as, as one of the costs of war. Yeah, absolutely. It costs millions of dollars, you know, for the veterans administrations to take care of these veterans after they come back. Uh, millions over a soldier's lifetime, and a lot of soldiers, a lot of service people, they come back and they're 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 immediately put on on opiates, uh, prescription painkillers, anti-anxiety drugs. They often get addicted to alcohol and nicotine. Um, and so, what we're presenting here is an alternative to that too. Really, it's kind of radical uh, in, in an additional sense, not just that we're working with formerly stigmatized compounds, but, but also because it's, it's a different approach to treating PTSD where we're not going for the symptoms. We're not just trying to help people sleep better. Or we're not just trying to reduce people's anxiety. We're not trying to help them forget their difficult memories. Instead, we're trying to provide a um, psychotherapeutic context where people can address those memories directly, uh, often painfully. It's, awfully, it's often a very difficult process, what, what they go through in the therapy, because they have to engage with these memories very, very directly and talk about them very clearly, very explicitly, in order to reprocess these memories. So people aren't going to be taking drugs every day for the rest of their life. This isn't about receiving MDMA every day or taking it every week or even a bunch of times. Uh, but the results we're seeing are, are, are just after two or three MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions and then often never needing it again. Now, Brad, I've got just a couple more questions for you. But first, I need to take a minute to give a little love to our sponsor, Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductibles skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. 
That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. You guys are actually trying to cure people. You're actually trying to fix people, whereas a lot of these prescription drugs that people take uh, to, to kind of cover up these disorders, they're not they're not combined with therapy all the time necessarily, and I'm sure a lot of people are in therapy as well, but you know, a lot of it is just to kind of shut down those emotions, and, and, and I, I imagine that over time, that, that's not a healthy thing. I mean, that we that to me, that would just, and again, I'm no expert on this stuff, but just from a basic, from a kind of commoner's, uh, a layman's viewpoint, it seems to me that repressing this stuff and pushing it away covering it up with certain drugs is really going to make the problem worse long term and, and make this person miserable over time whereas you know addressing it more head on and with the assistance of a drug like MDMA seems like a, a to me just a, a much more reasonable approach yeah absolutely mark you know there's some people for which those approved drugs work uh, and uh, it's um, it's just that there's a significant minority at least uh, of, of people for whom they don't work at all and for many people yeah they still have to stay on those drugs uh, in, in order to continue to receive the benefits from them so we're really looking for an alternative to that. One more thing I want to touch on real quick. I know you research a various number of substances, and one of those is ayahuasca. And this is something I've, I've heard a lot about recently in the last few years. I know people that have, have talked about going down to South America and doing one of those kind of shaman ceremonies where they drink the ayahuasca. So can you tell us exactly what ayahuasca is and, and some of the research you've been doing into that? Sure, sure. Ayahuasca has been exploding uh, in popularity recently. Uh, we can kind of look back at the 1960s and see the explosion of interest in LSD, how just all of a sudden, over the course of just a few years in the early 60s, we had you know, hundreds of thousands of people using LSD. We're starting to see that with ayahuasca, too, with people flocking down to South America or Central America to use ayahuasca in these uh, ceremonial or shamanic contexts. Uh, MAPS has sponsored a little bit of research, um, some observational research looking at ayahuasca combined with therapy uh, in, 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 an, in an actual ayahuasca retreat setting uh, for the treatment of substance abuse disorders. Uh, so addiction to uh, various drugs, uh, including alcohol, um, also compulsive behaviors. Uh, we just sponsored a study uh, that has recently been published looking at ayahuasca combined with therapy in a retreat setting in British Columbia. Uh, that was an observational study where we simply collected qualitative interviews from subjects before participating in an ayahuasca retreat and then after. And uh, we did find some significant reductions in, in substance abuse disorders. Uh, you can learn more about it at maps.org slash ayahuasca, the results of that research. Uh, we're also moving forward with a little bit of research looking at uh, groups of people going down to Peru, um, some observational research again uh, that's going to be collecting interviews from people who are using ayahuasca in ceremonial contexts. So ayahuasca is a it's a it's a combination of things. Uh, it's a um, it's a it's a uh, naturally occurring. It's a it's a botanical decoction that's traditionally used in ceremonial contexts in South America. And um, you know, like like any other any other drug, uh, there's uh, safer ways to use it, and there's less safe ways to use it. And uh, there just hasn't been enough research yet, knowing exactly who it's good for and uh, who should avoid it. Uh, but the thing that we advise for anybody who's considering you know, going down to South America, somewhere where it's legal, and using it on their own, is just to carefully, uh, uh, just to carefully make sure that there are adequate. Uh, that there are adequate safeguards and that there's adequate supervision and that there's medical support nearby. 
uh, and um, just to, to, to fully educate themselves about the situations that they're getting into. Because um, just because somebody claims to be a ceremonial expert and that it's a safe setting doesn't necessarily mean that it is. There's been some unfortunate um, some unfortunate deaths in South America due to inadequate supervision or inadequate screening of people participating in those. So what we're trying to do then is to just find out more about whether we're actually seeing some real results here that we can measure in a quantitative way, uh, or if not, you know, what other alternatives to the safe and sustainable use of ayahuasca might be. So yeah, ayahuasca is a, is a fascinating phenomenon right now. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how it develops culturally. And Brad, this is all really fascinating stuff to me. And I, I think that the big lesson here is that, you know, yeah, every substance can have negative effects, any substance whatsoever, from, from chocolate cake to, you know, to, to well, maybe not water, but just about anything can be abused. <laughs> and, you know, but the fact is every substance can have negative qualities and positive qualities. And it's important not to just criminalize every substance because once you do that, once you push it underground, well, you're not going to be able to really explore the positive qualities of these things. Whereas the only thing you're going to get are the abuse by pushing it to the black market, by pushing it to the side, by by pushing that sort of dare, fear-mongering mentality. So I'm so glad there are organizations like MAPS, people like yourself that are out there talking about this stuff and just and if nothing else, trying to shed a little bit of sunlight onto this uh, so we can actually have an adult conversation about how some of these substances uh, can really help people. So, Brad, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody a little roundup of how they can, you know, how they can find more information about Maps, how they can get involved, and you know how they can contact you. Yeah, Mark. You know, thanks so much for hosting this conversation. It's been uh, really great. Thanks for helping get the word Absolutely. out. You know, the real science is just so important, and this education against the counter education against the educate. You know, we're just really helping helping educate people. So thanks, thanks so much. Um, you can check out maps at maps.org. We have a newly designed website. That's maps.org. Uh, our email newsletter goes out uh, at least once a month with all sorts of research updates from around the psychedelic science field. Uh, we're also on Facebook, uh, Twitter. Google Plus, Reddit, uh, just got a brand new video up on YouTube today uh, about uh, psychedelic science in Silicon Valley, so uh, check that out too. And uh, any questions, feel free to email me directly. I'm at brad, that's B-R-A-D, at maps.org. Happy to answer questions. Great. Brad Burge, thanks once again for coming on the show. Best of luck. Okay, thank you so much, Mark. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar. That's right. Every Monday to Friday, we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsofLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Phew. Wow, that is some fascinating stuff, huh, guys? I mean, everyone just pictures when they hear the term psychedelic drugs or they hear LSD, MDMA, this kind of thing. Like I mentioned, all you think of is... You know, you, you picture a room full of smoke and uh, tie-dye and lava lamps and stuff like that. 
And that's all well and good. If people want to use psychedelics to just relax and expand their mind and have a good old time, I'm certainly not going to advocate for you to, to go in jail for it. That's for sure. I do hope that anybody that does experiment with these drugs will try to do their research and do it in a, in a safe environment. And people at MAPS, as Brad described, are providing the absolute safest environment possible to look into these drugs. And, you know, it takes a hell of a lot of paperwork, a hell of a lot of red tape to go through the FDA, to go through the DEA, to deal with just a numerous federal agencies in order to just conduct this research. Um, it shouldn't be this difficult to conduct this research in our society, but it is. But regardless, they are doing some great work, and uh, there is no doubt that the more we talk about this stuff, the more the stigma of drugs just as a substance is kind of peeled back, and we can actually have an adult conversation about what some of this stuff can do, how it can be beneficial, how it can be harmful. We need to be honest about this stuff. We can't just have a fear-mongering, dare-type mentality towards this stuff. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that say they learned about drugs through D.A.R.E. Well, it's how they got curious. So, you know, next thing they know, somebody offers them some and they try it out. And maybe some people end up on a bad path because of that. And I'm sure they do. And I'm not trying to say drugs are all great. Everyone should be out doing drugs. But we certainly shouldn't be throwing people in jail merely for having them, merely for possessing them or for using them for medicinal purposes, as medical marijuana often is used for. And as we've discussed with Brad Burge here today, as people like MAPS are also using psychedelic drugs for. We need to look at this stuff from a medical, scientific viewpoint, not from an issue of criminalization. The only people that should be considered criminals are people that actually actively harm other people. Not that just happen to have a specific substance that, for whatever reason, certain people in government have decided needs to be criminalized. But ultimately, it's going to stay that way until more people start to see this for what it is. The drug war is a crime. It's a crime against humanity. And, you know, a lot of people go to jail just for having a good time. But even more so, it stifles legitimate research, such as the people at MAPS are doing. So this is a great organization. I highly recommend you guys looking into it. Of course, head over to lionsofliberty.com for the full show notes of this episode and, and more information on about how to reach MAPS. Uh, next week, come on back next week. I hope you'll come on back next week. Next Tuesday, I'm going to be speaking with a young man named Brandon Keebler, who has started an organization called Project Digital Privacy, which aims to raise awareness of and curtail spying by local police departments. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's right. He is 16 years old, this kid, who's already launched his whole organization, really putting me to shame here. Uh, I'm, I'm almost twice this kid's age, and I, all I have is a dinky website in this podcast. But I hope it's at least something you guys are enjoying. I hope you'll keep coming back. And until next time, folks... Why don't you go ahead and live long and live a free? And I gotta live.